This is the podcast of Redemption Bible Church, where applicational preaching is a distinctive of our church. For more information, log on to redemptionfw.org. Thanks for listening. All right, while the kids are heading out, you can pull out your Bibles to Acts chapter 12, and that is verses 20 through 24. Acts chapter 12, verses 20 through 24. Okay. So it reads, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Good morning, church. Pastor Jamie is under the weather this morning, uh, so you can be praying for him. Thankfully, I was already scheduled to preach, and yes, he did give me hair getting eaten by worms, so thanks for that, Jamie. Um, But here we go. So I love the simplicity with which kids trust. Uh, I remember the the first time when we were at Disney World and Makari was just getting big enough to ride the big rides. So this is a picture of her after just getting off of Tower of Terror at like six years old um, and loving it. Uh, but we, the next day we were at um, Animal Kingdom and the biggest ride there is called Expedition of Everest. And it's the biggest roller coaster in all of Disney. And I remember a little six, seven-year-old Macari or whatever she was looking up at this big roller coaster, like as we're getting closer and closer through the line, being like, uh, I don't know about this, Dad. And so we were getting to the point of the line. There's always what I call the chicken line. I don't know what it's actually called, but for those of you who aren't thrill seekers, there's probably a more gracious term than chicken line. But for me, who is a thrill seeker, it's the chicken line. And she was like, I'm inching towards this thing. Like, I, I don't think I'm going to do this, Dad. And I looked at her and I said... Do you trust me? And she gave me a big hug and she said yes. And I said that because I knew how much she loves water slides and she'd just done Tower of Terror and all of these things and she could do it and she was going to love it. And so simply she said yes and walked on, rode the ride and loved every minute of it. It's easy for kids to trust. And yet somewhere along the way as we grow older and become adults, We lose that. It becomes a little harder to trust. It's a greater struggle to trust others. It's a struggle to trust God. It's a struggle to do all of those things. And I think the question for us on the table from the book of Acts this morning is this. Do you trust God? Do you trust God? I mean, really, in the moment by moment, daily struggle of living out the Christian life, do you actually trust God? When life gets hard, do you trust him? When life is going amazing, do you trust him? 
When others tell you how awesome you are, do you still trust God? When others tell you how terrible you are, do you still trust God? It's what I want for you. That's what I think the book of Acts is calling us to this morning. And it's why our big idea is this this morning. It's I will trust God because he is always working. I will trust God because he is always working. And I want to acknowledge this morning that that's, that's not easy. It's not easy to always trust God. It can be really hard sometimes to actually put our trust and our weight on God because the circumstances of life or what we're seeing around us make it challenging and difficult for us to think that God is doing what we think he should be doing. And trusting God takes a commit, a consistent commitment to placing our weight on him and not on ourselves and our own thinking and our own abilities. It's constantly dragging our hearts to the right things and not letting them drift to the wrong things. So this morning, we're going to look at four commitments to trusting God from the text. Four commitments to trusting God. The first is this, I will not reject God's work. I will not reject God's work. Let your eyes fall back on Acts chapter 12, starting in verse 20. It says this, Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. Why, why was Herod in this place? So this text that I'm preaching this morning is very connected to the text that Jamie preached last week. So we're going to be looking back at that several times this morning. But So why was Herod where he was? Well, first of all, who was this Herod? This was Herod Agrippa I. Most of you are probably more familiar with Herod the Great. That's the guy who built all the cool things uh, in the in Israel over there. Um, but he is actually the grandson of Herod the Great, Agrippa is. And the whole Herod clan was kind of paranoid, honestly, and very brutal and demanded obedience from those who were their subjects. So much so that Herod the Great had his own son, who was Agrippa the first dad, murdered because he didn't think he could trust him. So at the age of three, Agrippa's dad is murdered and he's sent to the city of Rome to learn and to be taught in the Roman courts. And eventually through circumstances, he comes back to the region he was from and is given oversight of cities or territories um, in that region. And because of his connection to Rome and the way he treated the Jews, he was beloved by both the Romans and the Jews. And he really wanted that love very strongly, so much so that he became a fierce persecutor of Christians because the message of Christianity was in opposition to both Rome and the Jewish people. So remember back to what Jamie had preached last week. Agrippa has James killed. He has Peter thrown in prison and then... God frees Peter from jail. And Herod was really happy about that. No, he was not. He was extremely ticked, so much so that the sentries who were overseeing the jail, he had them executed and killed. 
And now the text here indicates that he now has this problem with Tyre and Sidon. He's challenging these two cities that have a long, long history of trading with his uh, territories that actually dates all the way back to 1 Kings chapter 5, a long way back in history, that they traded to get food because of their location. They couldn't grow what they needed, and so they were dependent on the trade to be able to feed their people. So this is really a very evil, strong act to be restricting this trade. It will literally kill Tyre and Sidon. But Herod's ticked. His pride's been challenged. And so he acts harshly towards Tyre and Sidon as a response. Things aren't going his way, so he retaliates against other people. God was working in such a way that he wanted to get Herod's attention. He wanted to reveal himself to Herod, and Herod rejects it. And it gets pretty ugly for Herod. The story kind of reminds me of Pharaoh and, and the ten plagues that happened in Egypt. Pharaoh was mistreating the people of God, you'll remember. And God began to work in a way that would get Pharaoh's attention. And God told Moses this in Exodus 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. And so what does God do at that point? He brings plagues, 10 of them in total. And for the first nine, it comes, the plague comes, and Pharaoh says, okay, 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 I'm good. I'm going to repent. I'm going to let your people go. It's going to be great. And then what happens? He hardens his heart. And he says, I don't believe what you're doing. I don't believe in you, really. Until eventually it ends up costing him and his entire nation in a huge, huge way with the 10th plague where the firstborn of every male is wiped off the planet, except for those that follow what God had said. Hardening our hearts towards what God is doing is seriously dangerous business. Hardening our hearts towards what God is doing is seriously dangerous business. The book of Hebrews has several stern warnings to us about experiencing God, but never actually trusting him. Here's one in Hebrews chapter 10 to look at. Starting in verse 23, it says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Why? For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This text isn't talking about losing your salvation. It doesn't fit in the context of Hebrews 10. It is asking, are you somebody who is sitting in church, reaping the benefits of being part of a body of believers, but still deliberately sinning over and over and over and not repenting of that? I want you to know this morning, brothers and sisters that you might be able to fool those around you in this body. You might be able to fool your other brothers and sisters in Christ. 
You might be able to even fake it with your family. Maybe even you can phone it in with your spouse. But you're not going to fool God. If you're reaping the benefits of the body of Christ, but you are not growing more towards Christ's likeness, you need to take a good, long look in the mirror and ask why. And if that's you, what you need, what you need to do is to repent. John MacArthur said this about repentance. Genuine repentance pleads with the Lord to forgive and deliver from the burden of sin and the fear of judgment in hell. It is the attitude of the publican who, fearful of even looking toward heaven, smote his breast and cried, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Repentance is not merely behavior reform, but because true repentance involves a change of heart and purpose, it inevitably results in a change of behavior. True repentance impacts three things or should impact three things in your life. It should impact your intellect, your emotion, and your volition. Your intellect, your emotion, and your volition. Intellect, it, it's got to change your viewpoint. It's a recognition of your guilt and an unworthiness and helplessness that you have before the Lord. If you don't change how you think, you aren't repentant. It has to change your emotion. Louis Burkhoff, in his systematic theology, talking about repentance, said this. A cha- it's a change of feeling manifesting itself in sorrow for sin committed against the holy God. It's a change of feeling manifesting itself in sorrow for sin committed against a holy God. If we don't feel all that bad about our sin, how much are we actually repentant? It has to change the way we think. It has to change the way we feel. And then it has to change our volition or our action. It's a a turning away from sin, but not just turning away from something. It's turning towards something else, seeking pardon and cleansing, running towards our God. That's what repentance looks like, right? Thinking with right emotion, with right action. All of those things align in true repentance. It's a response of the total person, and it looks like total surrender to God. But if you don't trust your God, you're not going to repent like that. If you trust your own logic and your own reasoning more than you trust God, you're not going to change your viewpoint. It won't impact your intellect. If you trust your feelings and your sense about a situation over what God has said to be true, then you won't repent with your emotions. If you don't trust that God's way will bring fullness of life, will bring fullness of joy more than your sin does, then you won't be willing to give it up. Repentance takes total surrender to God. Do you repent from your sin like that? Do you trust God enough to repent like that? As God's working in your life, 
How are you reacting to how he's working? Is it repentance and humility? Or is it pride and lashing out at others like Herod did? How's God trying to grow you right now? What's he working on in your life? How are you responding to that? Are you reacting in repentance? I mean, this true, biblical, robust repentance that we're talking about. Here's the good news. If you're saying no, you can. Right now, in this moment, repent. If you're hesitant, I would challenge you to consider that hesitancy in light of Hebrews 10. What's holding you back? What do you think you need in order to actually repent before the Lord? I'm not here to make you unnecessarily question your salvation this morning. That's not my goal. But scripture is clear. When God moves and works, when he is drawing you to himself, you should be responding in humility and repentance. Not perfectly, but increasingly over time. If you look back five years ago and you look the same way today that you did five years ago, you better look in the mirror and ask why. Because God has promised in his word he is going to grow us to be more like his son Jesus. If we are true believers in his son. If that's not happening, you need repentance in your life. Maybe for the first time. So four commitments to trusting God this morning. The first, I will not reject God's work. The second, I will not steal God's glory. I will not steal God's glory. Let your eyes fall back on verse 21 of Acts 12. It says this, on an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. Herod goes from bad to worse. He is being harsh on Tyre and Sidon. But then, in this gathering of people that he is attending, he goes for all the pomp and circumstance and stands up in front of them, and he looks for them to return praise to him. And when they do, he doesn't shut it down because he loves it. He wants it. He desires it. So much so, this was such an event that Josephus, who was a Jewish historian of the day and very, um, a very accurate historian, records this uh, in his writings. And he talks about how Herod put on a robe that was made of silver and lined with silver. So much so, he wanted to be up and be noticed and known. He gets all of this pomp to deliver this speech to a crowd of a people who loved him and he knew it. And they respond and they say, he's a God. He doesn't shut it down. He basks in it. He loves it. He wants it. And Luke tells us in verse 23, because he did not give God the glory. He did not give God the glory. 
what all that Herod had was because of God. Any power, any fortune, any fame, all of that was directly because of God working in Herod's life, whether he acknowledged it or not. And Herod decided he would take the glory for that. But Isaiah 42, 8 says this, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. But Herod steals God's glory for himself. So last night I had a little bit of free time, and so I just decided that I was going to just paint this painting last night. I love the colors. Um, I'm going to call it a star evening, I think is what I'm going to go with. Um, okay, obviously that's ridiculous. First of all, I'm a terrible drawer or painter or any of those things. And this also happens to be one of the most famous paintings in all of history. So y'all know I'm full of it. You know I didn't paint it. But for at least that small moment, I tried to take the glory for the painting of Starry Night, which clearly Vincent Van Gogh painted. Yes, it was ridiculous. And so is Herod trying to take the glory from God. So is you trying to take the glory from God. Do you know that God is way better than Vincent Van Gogh? And we wouldn't dream of standing up here and actually trying to take credit for painting Starry Night. Yet somehow we fall into the trap of trying to steal God's glory. And we're all prone to that. We're all prone to try to steal God's glory. We're all able to believe our efforts have brought us to where we are and that it is not God's working and moving and sovereign hand that actually has. It's a temptation for all of us. So how are you specifically tempted to steal God's glory? What are the ways that you want people to notice you most? It's probably an indicator of where you're trying to steal glory from the Lord. We don't want to be glory robbers. We want to return glory to the only one who is worthy of that glory. Four commitments to trusting God this morning. First, I will not reject God's work. The second, I will not steal God's glory. And the third is this, I will trust God's methods. I will trust God's methods. The entirety of this story in chapter 12 is, is really interesting. You've got three main things that happen here. Herod kills James. Peter's put in prison and God breaks Peter out of prison. And then Herod gets struck down by an angel. Why is one believer murdered and one freed? Why is Herod ever allowed to persecute Christians at all? Why is this speech the thing that makes God say, enough is enough, Herod, you're done? Why wouldn't it have been the killing of James? That seems way more egregious to me. It's the murder of one of the leaders of the church. What in the world is God doing? He reacts immediately to Herod saying, being championed as a god but allows him to continue after murdering someone i think those are all legitimate questions to ask and here's the answer i don't know 
At least not fully. I don't fully know why God works the way he works in specifics. But here is what I do know. God will always act in a way that brings him the most glory and fits within his character. I'll say that again. God will always act in a way that brings him the most glory and fits within his character. So God will never stop being just. He cannot stop being loving. He cannot lie, which means he can't go back on one of his promises. God will always work to bring himself glory. Why? Because he is the most glorious being that exists. And for him to seek the glory of anything other than himself is to seek something that is less and actually violates his own character. God will always operate within his own character. Have you heard about this guy who was so stressed out that he decided he'd rather be a goat? So this guy went as far as writing a grant and receiving a grant for $40,000 to get goat prosthetics made so that he could go live and eat grass and roam the Alps with goats. First of all, I have questions. Uh, So many. But... Why, why a goat? Like, if I'm like, I want to be an animal, goat is not high on that list. And uh, so why in the world is it appealing to be a goat? I don't know. But all that to say, and well, second question, who gave him $40,000? Like, why was that okay? Like, what? I don't, I don't know. Here's the bottom line, though. Do you know he's not a goat? He will never be a goat. He's a man. He's a person. He can never do and act in, I mean, he can act not like a human. Apparently he can act like a goat, but he will never be anything less than a human. He has to do human things because he is in fact a human. He can't act act outside of being a human because he is one. Do you know that God can also never act outside of who he is because he is who he says and he will never change. And that should bring us comfort. It's what we call the immutability of God. That means he can never change. God has been the same yesterday. He is the same today. And he will be forever. So we can trust him. Because the promises that God made will come true because he made them. Who God is towards you will never change because he will never change. And in case you doubt whether God is actually for you and you should trust him, I'd like to remind you of Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 3. It says this, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy. Hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You were a fool. You were disobedient. You were led astray. You were in pursuit of malice and envy. But God, 
He sent his son, Jesus, to wash away your sin. To regenerate you. To give you new life. To justify you by grace and make you an heir of hope. You can trust him. If he went to enough lengths to kill his own son to deal with your sin, how could we not trust him? He's got it. He isn't going back on his promises. He isn't going to change. He is who he says he is. He sent his son to prove the depth of how trustworthy he is. You can trust him. So what promises has God made to you in his word that you're not trusting? Is your attitude towards God trusts? Or is it questioning his character or his methods? How well do you know your God to know what you should be trusting about him? These are all things for us to consider this morning. Four commitments to trusting God. I will not reject God's work. I will not steal God's glory. I will trust God's method. And the fourth is this. I will hope in God's promises. I will hope in God's promises. What happens after Herod dies? Look back at verse 24. But the word of God increased... And multiplied. The word of God increased and multiplied. The message of God, the gospel, goes forward. The church grows. Herod's death relaxes this persecution and the church begins to flourish again. God provides for his people. This is something Luke has said over and over. Why is it so significant to him? Because he knew the truth of Matthew 16, 18, and what, Jesus, and what God said to Peter. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God is going to build his church. Nothing is going to stop that. He is building his church on the foundation, the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and nothing is going to stand in the way of that. Does that bring us a little comfort today? You think false teachers will stand in the way of God building his church? Wrong. You think a government or a political party or a country can stand in the way of God accomplishing his mission? Absolutely not. You think a virus can stop God? No way. Nothing is going to stop our God. Maybe a little closer to home. You, you think your husband's weaknesses as a father are going to stop God from working in the lives of your kids? It's not. You think your wife's shortcomings are going to keep God from working in your home? Wrong. You think your teenager's inability to think something through will ruin what God is going to do in their life in the future? It won't. See, God is building his church. And not just numerically, but spiritually building his church. The gates of hell will not win. 
God is going to get done what God wants to get done because he is that strong, he is that mighty, he is that sovereign, he is that in control. And what he wants to accomplish, he will accomplish. God struck down Herod because Herod got in the way of that mission. And he can do that again if he needs to. In fact, he will do it again. Flip over to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11, says this. Then I saw a great white throne, and him, Jesus, who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Jesus Christ will judge. God will deal with all evil, all sin, all injustice, every last bit of it, all of it. God won't be mocked. When we look at the world around us, sometimes we think, God is being mocked. Why isn't he doing something? Look at Galatians 6-7 in this truth. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. You are deceiving yourself, church, if you think the world is mocking God and getting away with it. God will win. He will deal with what is going on in the world. It may not be in the way that you want or the time that you want or exactly how you want, but he is going to do it. We have the end of the story. We just read it. He will win. And that should bring us a huge amount of hope. If your faith has been placed in Jesus Christ and his work for you, his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, You will win because God won in Jesus. And through that, he's going to judge on that basis someday. And if your faith is in him, your name is written in that book of life. And you won't be judged in the same way because Jesus Christ took the wrath and the justice of the Father on himself for you. But those who have not made that decision, will get the wrath and justice of God for eternity. God will win. He is winning. He is not losing, church. So hope in your God. Trust in his ways. Run to him, not away from him. 
He is who he says he is. He will do what he said he will do. He has proven his trustworthiness by sending his son Jesus to pay your biggest debt that you couldn't pay. So trust him. Trust in God. Let's pray. What a truth to marvel in, God. The truth that you sent your son Jesus to take the wrath that has to be satisfied because you are who you say you are and your wrath must be satisfied and yet Jesus chose to take that on himself sparing me from that wrath, sparing me from that justice, sparing those who put our faith in him from that wrath and justice. God, that truth should drive us to two things. It should drive us to the desire to want to share that with those around us because we know there is a judgment coming. And we want to share the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done to help spare them from that judgment. God, give us a desire to seek the lost around us. And it should drive us to a gratefulness for the gospel. A depth of understanding who Jesus is. And what he's done. And when we understand that, we can live as a people with hope. We don't have to live in despair. We don't have to live questioning the things around us because we know the end of the story. Jesus wins. And because he wins and we are in his body, we win with him. You are not losing. Help us understand that help us rest in that help us put our trust fully in you this morning and not on ourselves it's in the precious name of jesus that we pray amen let's stand together we're going to sing a song this morning that reminds us of these truths and also gives us an opportunity to even declare that we trust the lord so let's sing this song together
thank you for that truth this morning. We thank you for the truth that you are unfailing, that you are mighty, that you are sovereign, that you are in control, you will never change, and that we can put our trust fully and wholly on you. God, I pray that we would walk in that truth this week. Pray we would live in a way that puts our actual trust, not just something we know we should do, but the actual weight of the way that we live, trusting fully and wholly in our God. Would you do that in us, we pray. It's in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, church. You are loved. Have a great week.